Well, good morning. We gather on this Wednesday in the sixth week of Easter. We continue our travel log journeys with Paul and cohort as they make their way into the eastern part of southern Europe now, now in Macedonia. Yesterday, they had been in Philippi. Of course, we read that Paul had been, and, and Silas, Timothy as well, had been in prison, in fact, beaten with iron rods and then in prison. Then an earthquake happened, the chains were loosened, they broke free, the jailer brought, to, to, brought them to his home. He and his family were baptized and continued in the faith. And we had heard that uh, while in Philippi, they had been visited by a, a lady named Lydia. Thyatira is her hometown. She'd taken them into her home to feed and care for them. They'd gone into the town square, the village square. Uh, in Philippi, had been arrested. And when they're freed, that's whose home they go back to. So they return back to the home of Lydia in Thyatira. Thyatira. Well, they leave then, and we're then told in detail from Paul. We, we pick up today in the 15th verse, but if we back up to the first verse of chapter 17, we're told this. They took the road through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they reached Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, you can follow with your finger, trace the northeast coast of the Mediterranean, the north shore of the Aegean Sea, and you can see these various cities named. And they're following the coastal road, and they go into the town of Thessalonica to the synagogue. Now, interesting for us as Christians to note, the first letter to the Thessalonians is the first letter that Paul writes. That's the first manuscript that he, he puts to, to media. And he does that approximately in the year 55-56 AD. So about 22 years after Christ had died, risen, and ascended, Paul is writing this letter, first letter to the Thessalonians. So it, just for your biblical knowledge to note that, what's the first letter of the New Testament? It's not the Gospels, it's Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. That's first. Following his usual custom, Paul joined them in the synagogue, and he did that for three Sabbaths in a row. So now for three weeks, we're told, he's in the synagogue in Thessalonica, Thessalonica preaching. And some are upset about that. There are, uh, there are, we're told this, the Jews became jealous and recruited some worthless men. Uh, Luke wants us to know that. These are worthless men loitering in the public square. They formed a mob and they set the city in turmoil. They marched on the house of Jason because Jason had stood in their defense. They marched on the house of Jason intending to bring them before the people's assembly. They couldn't find them, so they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city magistrates, then decrying Jason and his brothers because they had stood in support of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They leave there. The, bro the brothers then immediately sent Paul and Silas to Berea during the night. Berea is about 25 miles inland from Thessalonica, up in the hills. If you look on a map, you can see it rises from the Mediterranean to the north, looking to the north now, it rises some, some elevation 25 miles inland, and that's where they go. For they've received word uh, that those in Berea were welcoming to the scriptures. Many of them came believers, and did not a few of the influential Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had now been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they came up there also, coming after him, stirring up the crowds. 
And that brings us to today, because they, they leave then. It says this, so the brothers at once sent Paul on his way to the seacoast where Silas and Timothy had remained. And after Paul's escorts had taken him to Athens, they came away with instructions for Silas and Timothy to follow in trace. So the brothers, meaning followers of the way, Christians, have now secured Paul's safety from Berea. They brought him back down to the coast. They put him on a ship. They send him to Athens. And Silas and Timothy will come following. Paul's now back in Athens. What we know from Paul's personal biography is he'd been a, a student in Athens. He'd studied uh, for some years there. He studied at the knee of Gamaliel, a great, great rabbi in Jerusalem, but he had also graduated from schools of reason and logic, schools of philosophy as it was known, in Athens. So Paul basically is making a homecoming. And at the time, why is this important for the Christian expansion, Christian word, the, the word of Christ shared to the world? It's because at that time, Athens was considered the intellectual center of the known world. Athens was the intellectual center of the known world. It's the source of metaphysics. The great schools there were considered the pinnacle of human reason and thought. We're told the Areopagus is there, the court of the Areopagus. One of the influential people that becomes a believer after Paul's preaching is a man named Dionysus, and he's, his, his uh, title is a member of the court of, uh, of Areopagus. So he would be, uh, boy, a modern-day contemporary example. He would be a dean, uh, using that analogy, of a leading, world-leading university. That's who he is. So this man becomes a Christian, and he's a Greek philosopher. So he's arrived at the faith of Christ through reason. He gets there through reason. When Paul's in Athens, this is what he's saying. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas, he grew exasperated at the sight of the city full of idols, because Athens was beautiful. It was a pantheistic, uh, Greek faith was pantheistic. So they had many statues and idols. So he debated in the synagogue with the Jews and with the worshipers and daily in the public square with whoever, whoever happened to be there. Even some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers engaged him in discussion. That, that's, that was the main vocation of many people in, in Greece in total, but certainly in Athens, was to enter into these constant philosophical debates about things. He sounds like a promoter of foreign deities, but he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and led him to the, the Areopagus. That's this big uh, court, courtyard, if you will, beautifully designed, beautiful architecture. The court of the Areopagus and said, Many, may we learn of this new teaching that w- of which you speak, for you bring some strange notions to our ears. We would like to know what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians, as well as the foreigners residing there, use their time for nothing else but telling or hearing something new. They're, they're busybodies with their philosophical wanderings. How'd they make any money, you gotta wonder. What'd you people do for a living? You sat around the courtyard and debated philosophical ideas. Then Paul stood up at the Areopagus and said, you Athenians, I see that in every respect you are very religious. So this section out of Luke's 17th chapter of Acts, entitled in some translations, uh, you'll see a heading, Paul's speech at the Areopagus. This is where uh, our great saying, Aquinas will tell us, fides et ratio, fides et ratio. You've heard us speak of that here before, heard me mention that. Fides et ratio, faith and reason. Paul engages this very informed, very learned body 
in an intellectual arrival at truth. That's what he does. He's not, he's not appealing to an argument of mystical faith. He's just walking him logically through a truth. And he uses something, those of you who studied a little bit of Greek history know this from your studies, he uses an argument which would have resonated with them right away. It has to do with the idea of forms, of forms. It's important for us as Christians because our teaching on transubstantiation is based on the Greek metaphysical language of substance and accident, substance and accident. A daily homily is not appropriate to go into that in great detail. But in our creed, we use that, that term, transubstantial. Or we talk about transubstantiation and it's based on a consubstantialness with God, with Jesus Christ and the Father. Transubstantiation is the idea that the bread and wine through the work of the Holy Spirit, become the real presence of Christ. We Catholics, that's the source and summit of our faith. That the bread and wine retain their, if you will, externalities, their, their character of appearance, taste, and touch, but their substance becomes the real presence of Christ. Transubstance, change the substance. To a Greek hearer, that made perfect sense. John's Gospel, where the Bread of Life discourse is given to us so beautifully, is written in Greek to a metaphysical mind. So a early Greek hearer of John's Gospel and the testimony of Christ, if you grew up in a Greek culture, which was the Mediterranean culture, it was easier for the early Christians to understand the teaching of transubstantiation than it is for a contemporary Christian in the 21st century, because most of us have not studied metaphysics. We don't understand substance and accident. That's a foreign idea to us. But to a Greek, it's not. Paul tells us that, 28th verse, 17th chapter. For in him we live and move and have our being. In him we live and move and have our being. He's speaking to the world of forms and substance and accidents. That, he's in the Areopagus. He's in this learned chamber. They get it. He, they understand what he's talking about now. In him, in Christ, we, have, we live. We have our being and our form and our movement, our animation. To a Greek thinker, that makes sense. Christ is the substance of life. Christ is the substance of life. Since therefore we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that divinity is like an image fashioned from gold or silver, all these idols around their beautiful city, God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he demands that all people everywhere repent because he has established a day on which he will judge the world with justice through a man he has appointed, and he has provided confirmation for all by raising him from the dead. We can go further and should in our daily study of scripture, but this is exciting because here we engage in Luke's testimony of fact, of an occurrence that happened in this place that's knowable in Athens. You can walk the ground there, and in the court of Areopagus, you can read these words said 2,000 years ago by an individual who had an experience, a real experience of Christ, transformed his life in a, in a most complete way, goes back to his uh, place of residency where he himself studied Greek logic, and then teaches these in a very powerful way, teaches these truths in a very powerful way. And he's able to do that because what we heard in John's Gospel, beautifully read by the deacon. Our Lord tells us that. I have much more to tell you, but you cannot bear it now. But when he comes, the advocate, the spirit of truth, he will guide you in all truth. 
He will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are coming. He will glorify me, because he will take from what is mine, and he will declare it to you. And that's happening through Paul, Silas, Timothy, all of the early followers of Christ. They're speaking a truth that is not their own truth. They are infused with the movement, the energy, the beingness of Christ through the work of the Advocate. And that's true for us today, too. As we grow in the sacramental life of the church, we suspend our own ideas, we suspend our own brilliance, we suspend our own Aragopian sense of importance, and we follow our Lord alone and stand securely in his truth. Why? Because the advocate speaks a truth and gives it to us, and it's the fullness of Christ that we are presented with. It's the fullness of Christ in the... Holy Scripture, it's the fullness of Christ in, in this blessed sacrament that we are so privileged to receive and it allows us to then go before our own learned courts of society, the workplace, our homes, our neighborhoods, coffee shops, wherever those courtyards are that we go, and we tell a story and we speak a truth that is the truth. It's the truth, not a truth, it's the truth. And we're able to speak it into a world that assumes, like many of the Athenians, their own reasoned brilliance, their own, uh, their own way of understanding the world, their own new and innovative ways of understanding God's created beauty. And we speak into that truth with a compassionate heart, with humility, but we stand in the truth, which is God our Father, God his Son, Jesus, and the Advocate working within us. Let's go forth into our world and live that truth and speak that truth. Amen.